my patience has reached its end. Tell me, or I'll... No, not the buttons. Not my gumdrop buttons. All right, then. Who's hiding them? Okay, I'll tell you. Do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. Yes, I know the Muffin Man. Who lives on Drury Lane? Well, she's married to the Muffin Man. The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man! She's married to the Muffin Man. My lord, we found it. Well, then what are you waiting for? Bring it in. Well, that's a little clip there with our, uh, our nursery rhyme for this morning. That's from uh, the 2001 film Shrek, which you might be familiar with. Uh, and today we're continuing this series, uh, Rhyme and Reason, finding real wisdom in our favorite nursery rhymes. <clears throat> and we're looking at the Muffin Man in conjunction with the parable of the Good Samaritan which uh, is found in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel. And now I did a, a little reading about this nursery rhyme, and uh, it turns out there's not a lot of consensus on where it came from. Everyone agrees the muffin man was selling English muffins, not the kind of muffin that we might expect to see at a cafe. And he was delivering them from his shop on Drury Lane, which is right near Covent Garden in London. And some scholars quote an author named Pierce Egan, who published several volumes on the London boxing scene. It was called Boxiana. And he described an attempt to fix a match between Reuben Martin and Jonathan the Young Gas Bissell in uh, 1825. And I'm sure you're all familiar uh, with these two men. Uh, Bissell, uh, he refused to take the 200 pound bribe that he was offered to lose the fight. And instead he dobbed in both uh, the gentleman trying to fix the match uh, and the go-between who actually offered him the money, who was a muffin man from Gray's Inn Lane. When the gentlemen were accused of match-fixing, apparently they cried that they did not know the muffin man, and thus a nursery rhyme was born. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea, but it's a good story. <laughs> this morning, rather than thinking about people that we don't know, we're thinking about those that we do know, more specifically, how we love our neighbor, as Jesus instructs us, uh, his followers in all three synoptic Gospels. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is a good one to look at as we think about this theme because it's a passage that's saying a great deal more to us than meets the eye upon first reading. I'm not sure what your experience of the passage is, but I've often heard it preached as a lesson around care of others. Something along the lines of how the Good Samaritan embodies the way in which we too should be caring for our neighbors, self-sacrificing, generous, going over and above what's expected. And these things are all true, but it's not the point of the parable. What Jesus is communicating here is far more offensive to the people that are gathered than we often realize. So we're going to spend some time looking at the text here and then conclude thinking a bit about the systems that are embedded in our churches and how effectively they work to welcome people into the hospitality of God. This parable begins like many in Luke's Gospel, in that we find Jesus uh, with a group of people. Because the man who speaks to him stands to ask his question, the assumption is that he was sitting because Jesus is teaching. In the NRSV, the man is described as an expert in the law, um, some other versions translate it to lawyer. The message here, translating it to religious scholar, is probably the, the, the better uh, translation. The reason for that is that the, the idea of a lawyer is a bit confusing for us, uh, a modern audience, because this was not the job uh, that this man had. 
Suffice to say that he's an expert in Jewish religious law, which is found in the first five books of the Bible, what we might call the Pentateuch, um, but what Jews call the Torah. And now this man would have been part of the religious elite, a leader in the temple system, a group of people that we tend to villainize when we read scripture today. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and legal experts were all just people. Some of them received Jesus with open arms, but others refused to relinquish the power that they had through the temple system. And oftentimes we find this same idea true today. Those with much more to lose through following Jesus tend to be much more reluctant to follow him. So this man is just a person whose intention here is to test Jesus, perhaps maliciously, but more likely to see if his reading of the law has any alignment to that of the temple leadership of the day. And we read that he asks Jesus in verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts the question back on him, which is something Jesus often does in conversation with others. Jesus asks, what's written in the law? What do you read there? And the man's response shows his expertise. We read in verse 27 that, He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Which is a saying that we're quite familiar with now, but at the time it wasn't really a thing. We can understand from this that he's given a really savvy summary of passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. An Australian biblical scholar, Leon Morris, tells us that his response implies that One should love God with all that one is. The whole of human nature is included. The lawyer clearly had a deep insight into the scriptures when he could sum up the law in this way. And so Jesus says to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Now you might think he would leave it there, but uh, Nagaland biblical scholar Takatemjan Ao believes the man had lost face by asking a question to which he knew the answer. And so to regain control of the conversation, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This question isn't necessarily as um, facetious as it reads. Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 says, you shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any one of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hong Kong theologian Diane Chen writes that the implication of this passage is that a person's horizontal relationship with other people grows out of and is indicative of his or her vertical relationship with God. The lawyer doesn't quibble about loving God, but the issue of loving one's neighbor is ambiguous. The definition of a neighbor presupposes the existence of a non-neighbor, since a boundary simultaneously excludes as well as includes. Although Leviticus goes on to say that this law applies to foreigners as well as Jews, in Jesus' day, the definition of neighbor is very narrow. It definitely doesn't include Gentiles or non-Jews and definitely not Samaritans. Chen helps us understand uh, what's meant here a little better when she writes, among the Jews, the religious elite will not accept as neighbors those who fail to keep the law as scrupulously as they do. The mentality to hate sinners is prevalent. The book of Tobit reads, place your bread on the grave of the righteous, but give none to sinners. Similarly, the book of Sirach contains this, give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. 
The lawyer has in mind a particular definition of neighbor that concurs with his sense of self-righteousness. And Luke is already hinting toward the answer in his word choice, as the Greek term that he uses means more than the person who just lives nearby. It has in mind community and fellowship. Ultimately, the question puts us in mind of the question that underpins all of Luke's gospel. Just how far does the hospitality of God extend? So Jesus replies with a parable, and his parables make me think that he might not have always been the most fun to hang out with. You can imagine the disciples sitting around and they ask him, uh, hey Jesus, we were thinking we'd do like fish for dinner, how do you feel about that? And he'd say, well, guys, there once was a woman who had seven sons and seven daughters, and everyone would roll their eyes, I imagine. But this parable is an important one because it gives us an insight into what Jesus is doing in the world, as well as providing a strong challenge for us today. Jesus paints a picture of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about 30 kilometers long, with a descent of about a kilometer, so it's quite steep. The road is twisty, remote, and rocky, and although I'm sure the roads have been improved since the first century, uh, I looked up the walking directions from Jerusalem to Jericho on Apple Maps today, and it says that it's about a seven-hour walk. In Jesus' day, the road is famously a place where people would be robbed, so it's no surprise to Jesus' audience to hear that the man fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Interestingly, this uh, Greek word that Luke uses to describe the man as half dead only occurs once here in the Bible. So we don't know exactly what it means, but presumably it's not good news for the man. Jesus continues, now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here again, these two religious leaders are often upheld in the modern church as villainous kinds of figures. But that wouldn't have been the way that Jesus' audience would have heard this story. Both the priest and the Levite would have been experts in the law too, and this is what the Torah says about this situation. Numbers 19, 11 to 13 reads that those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean seven days. They shall purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and on the seventh day, they will not become clean. All who touch a corpse, the body of a human being who has died, and do not purify themselves defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Such persons shall be cut off from Israel. The man lying on the ground here may well appear dead, in which case taking too close a look at the body is risky, because it's not only the body itself that's unclean, but also the air above it and even its shadow. For this reason, and because of their high office, priests are forbidden from touching a dead body. Other issues are at play here too. There is a high priority placed on the burial of the dead in Judaism. It takes precedence over most other religious and familial obligations. In the ancient world, a Jewish person must bury a fellow Jew if there is no one else uh, there to do so, but this rule doesn't apply if the body belongs to a Gentile. The issue is, though, that in order to check whether the man was a Jew or a Gentile, the priest and the Levite would have run the risk of defilement. All these laws can be overlooked in the case of saving a life, 
But once again, the priest and the Levite would run the risk of defilement if the man turned out to already be dead. On top of all of this, the question of personal safety arises. What if the robbers who attacked this man are still around somewhere? It's fair to say that the priest and the Levite are both reasonably justified in their actions here. It may not be ideal, but they've followed the letter of the law. Now, if this parable followed the rules of traditional ancient Jewish storytelling, the third figure in the story should be a regular Jewish layperson. We see this format throughout the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish literature. And Chen tells us that to have a good Jewish commoner outperform two temple offices would make a delightful story. For even though the religious leaders were respected, the gap in wealth, privilege, and status between them and the populace was sometimes a source of envy and resentment. But the parable doesn't follow this format, and the third person is a Samaritan. Australian biblical scholar Brendan Byrne writes that centuries of holding together the adjective good and the noun Samaritan have dulled us to the explosive tension of the phrase in the world of Jesus. The hostility between Jews and Samaritans at the time makes the phrase an oxymoron, as a phrase like good terrorist would be for us. The hostility between Jews and Samaritans at this point is already centuries deep. The Samaritans are descended from those who were left behind when most of Israel was exiled by colonizing empires. They believed that they had faithfully maintained the correct ways of worshiping God, but as members of the Jewish diaspora returned to the land over the four centuries between 538 and 142 BC, they insisted worship take place on the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem rather than Mount Gerizim. And this is the continued cause of hostility and hurt between Jewish and Samaritan people today. So we read in uh, verse 33, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. And this Greek term that Luke uses here to describe the Samaritan man being moved with compassion, he only uses otherwise to describe acts of Jesus. So we could understand that this is a serious level of compassion that's on display here. From verse 34, we read, He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil, which was believed to help numb pain, and wine, which being alcohol is an antiseptic. Then he put him on his own animal, which meant that the Samaritan had to walk, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. The Greek historian Polybius explains the rate of accommodation in his day, which was around 150 BC. So, assuming the cost is at all similar, the Samaritan man is paying for something like two months' accommodation. But we read that the Samaritan man will also reimburse the innkeeper for anything he spends over and above this. The picture we have here is of someone going above and uh, beyond the level of hospitality that was expected. We could say he's being wildly hospitable. Because keep in mind, the same laws that prevent the priest and the Levite from helping the man also applied to the Samaritan. So Jesus concludes the story to, I imagine, a rather shocked group of Jews by asking, which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The legal expert is forced to say, the one who showed him mercy. 
though it seems he's too disgusted by the man being a Samaritan to refer to him in that way. Jesus says to him, go and do likewise, leaving Luke's audience wondering what this man and the gathered crowd did next. Takatamjan writes, the real issue was not whether the expert could identify whether someone was or was not a neighbor, but whether he was acting like a neighbor. The man did not need a definition of neighbor. What he needed was love for his neighbor. Jesus thus changed the emphasis of the word neighbor from being an object of someone's love to being a giver of love, which we must become. And he adds that this shift in meaning is significant and requires personal reflection. Similarly, Byrne concludes, this is the way to inherit eternal life. In the ministry of Jesus, which the church has to continue, God offers extravagant, life-giving hospitality to wounded and half-dead humanity. The way to eternal life is to allow oneself to become an active instrument and channel of that same boundary-breaking hospitality. And this is all true, but what this parable exposes is that there were systems within the family of God that prevented the work of God from taking place and prevented those who should enjoy the hospitality of God from doing so. Now, what I'm not saying here is that there was an issue with the Torah law as God had given it. You remember that Leviticus makes it clear that neighbor includes everyone in your local community, whether they be Jew or Gentile. But the way the family of God had interpreted God's instruction over time meant that it was no longer fulfilling its purpose. So I want to ask you this morning, in what ways have we as the church today built systems that inhibit the purpose of God? Earlier in the year, I got to spend a few days down at the Baptist Union's Multicultural Pastors Retreat, uh, which is probably my favorite of the BUV events that I get to attend. There was something like 120 uh, different leaders there representing a range of South, Southeast and East Asian communities, uh, as well as some Pacific Islander communities and a handful of Eastern European ones too. Um, I was there representing Whitley College and so was approached by people interested in studying with us or by those who are currently students. And one student came uh, to me distraught because she was struggling with her workload. She began by explaining that she's been in Australia for several years and she actually has a master's degree in accounting. So she's not a lazy student. She's been studying part-time in order to manage the workload and still be available for her family. Her issue was ultimately that it was taking her days and days to prepare for class because the lecturer was giving the class 10 or so readings a week and English wasn't her first language. For that reason, she was often having to translate readings line by line into her own language, using a whole range of apps and dictionaries, only to find that at times she didn't even know the meaning of certain theological terms in her own language, let alone in English. As it turned out, the lecturer was giving one or two compulsory readings each week, and then also seven or eight optional ones that students might take a look at if they were interested in the subject or if they had an assignment on the topic or something like that. He had also offered the student help but hadn't understood that there was too much cultural shame for this student around asking for help from her lecturer and appearing like she was a bad or a lazy student. No one else had presented themselves to her as an appropriate or trustworthy person to ask so she'd simply suffered in silence. 
This is a systemic problem in our college where students who happen to have learned English as their second or third or fourth language aren't being offered the support they need to excel in their study. And we've since discussed the issue in our academic committee and have made some steps toward changing the system to cater for those who are currently marginalised by it. I wonder what a comparable issue might be here at Northern Community. What systems might act as barriers to people's full participation in community life? I can't speak to what those might be here, but let me encourage you that the entire church has an ongoing obligation to make its spaces open and welcoming to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote that the Holy Spirit only exists in two places. The first is inside the church, empowering its people for the ministry of reconciliation. And the second is outside the church, calling those who do not yet know Jesus into right relationship with God and into the body of Christ. What does it mean then if our churches have systems in place that are preventative to any people entering into them and knowing the hospitality of God? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus, rebukes, uh, Jesus' rebuke of the temple leadership of his day is strong, precisely because their systems prevent people from coming to God. He says of them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves and when others are going in, you stop them. So let me conclude by encouraging you this morning to reflect upon the systems of this church body and to consider whether they welcome others into the fellowship of God's family as God intends. Brendan Byrne reminds us in his commentary on Luke's gospel, entitled, funnily enough, The Hospitality of God, that those who make up the community of the kingdom are not a sect completely separate from the rest of the world, its structures and institutions. They must live in it and value what is best in it, holding out to it the hospitality that they have themselves received from God. Do all this so that the next time someone asks you, do you know the Muffin Man? You can reply with confidence, yeah, I know the Muffin Man. I worship next to him in church on Sunday. Or I work with him and his family were just around at my place for dinner on the weekend. Welcome people into the hospitality of God so that the love of God may be experienced by those who are sick and lonely and tired and in dire need of it. Let's pray together. Loving God, we're grateful for your incredible love and hospitality. We're grateful, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to enter into the family of God and to have right relationship once more with God. We pray that as we, people empowered by the Spirit who know Jesus, are out in our day-to-day -day lives and a part of our regular communities, that, God, you would be helping us to reflect on how, how best to offer the hospitality of God uh, to others. May the church body gathered here as well reflect on 
what changes might need to be made in order to, to more effectively welcome others into this space. We pray, God, that you would continue to teach us, guide us, bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, uh, we're having a, a bit of a time of reflection, and I've written a few questions there. Um, there seems to be a whole bunch of different ways that you can respond uh, to that. I'm sure you're all more familiar with it than I am. Uh, but as David mentioned, there are some cards on your uh, seats as well um, that you're welcome to fill out. Um, thank you so much for having me.